Scotty, energize. Energize. Good evening, Energize the Lawn Friend podcast. Not scheduled. Just happens when it happens. Which is part and parcel to my way of living. Everything happens when it happens, because if it didn't happen that way, it wouldn't happen that way. So everything happens. And this is Energize the Lawn Friend podcast. March the 23rd, 2015. I have a lot of things on my mind. As you know, I don't live in Los Angeles. So, I, so when there's reason to come into my hometown, where I was born and raised, for Twilight Zone fans out there, I was born on Willoughby. No, really, my parents lived on Willoughby Avenue in Hollywood the day I was born. <clears throat> Last time I was in Los Angeles, I drove by the the duplex that my father told me uh, exactly, he described it 56, 7, 8 years later, and it hasn't changed. I don't think they've painted the place. And he, he, he told, also told me that's when, that was when he dropped me on my, on my shoulder and mommy, on my head when I was an infant. And he, he didn't drop me. He, he had me in his arms and he fell down the last two flights of stairs, two stairs, and, and I broke my collarbone because I cried a lot. <clears throat> Back in uh, Angel City, I have lots of things to say. I want to be confessional this evening. I've had, a, I've had a long, cold winter, Fred Corey, Tom Kiefer, and uh, was, was at Cheap Trick a couple weeks ago in, on Fremont Street, free show, downtown Las Vegas. 15,000 people showed up to rock out with the greatest, the greatest rock band to ever come out of Rockford, Illinois, and, you know, beyond. So, you know me, I'm a synchronicity guy, right? Everything's connected. Everything's connected. If you see the... Fab fabric of time and space and incidents interwoven in your brain, then it things make sense to you. So here's I don't even know why I brought up cheap trick. But here's my here's this is my drive. Eight a.m. Leave <clears throat> leave Vegas. Get on the fifteen coming. But before that. I want to find these Twilight Zone radio theater. Uh, boxes that I stuck in my storage um, room on my balcony. <clears throat> and I, this tub falls out, and this tub's got all these cassettes in it. And I look at these things. I go, wait a minute. Those are like my old interview cassettes. And they're, and one of them just sitting right on top. And I look at it, and I see it. And it says, Coverdale Page, February 4th, 1993, Bellage Hotel. Now, the Camry that my mother left me when she passed in August of 2013 um, has a cassette player. It's a 2002. It has a cassette player. So I, 
I get my gear for the road, you know, my power, my sugar-free power bars, because I'm pre-diabetic, so I have to, no sugar, so I've lost like eight pounds. And I have, kid, I have this kidney issue. It doesn't hurt, but I have to get an ultrasound. And I'm, you know, cholesterol, but I'm working on that. But I look good. So anyway, I had this long, cold winter. So like a week ago, uh, I, I don't, there's no, it's not linear, right? So I, I decide that I'm going to go meet Joe Bazzello at the Mirage Hotel when he's playing Final Four. Uh, not Final Four, the, uh, you know, March Madness. And, and he says, I'm going to take the last picture of you with the beard because, because I know that you want to take the beard off. I said, I do. Steven Tyler thinks I should shave my beard now. He, th- he says, I'll look 10 years younger. So he takes a picture. Joe takes a picture of me. I look like Brian Posehn in this photo. And then he posts it on his page, Facebook page. He says, this is, this is the end of the winter. Lawn friends' coat's coming off. And the next day, I, my sister-in-law, Linda Friend, the hairdresser of great, great heart and great talent with the scissors she hacks off my whiskers and i shave it cleaner and i send this picture to to tyler i said here i am and he says look at you man 10 years gone and he said some other things which i won't share but i feel lighter so i so this today is 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 a big day and tomorrow's a big day because tomorrow is my daughter's 25th birthday but i'll get to that later but it's the reason i'm in la so when i come to la i do things and one of the first things i do is i send mike stark producer engineer la radio studio the man who put energize on the map it's that tiny little speck that you could see amongst the other million stars in the sky it's the grain of sand on the airwave map of the universe. <laughs> but I love it, and, you know, that I just want to do it. There's no upside except for my heart and my ears, and Mike and I love doing this. So I, I get some traveling materials, some tunes, and then I grab this cassette, and this cassette, I listen to it in the car. And it's me and Jimmy Page and David Coverdale sitting in a room, and I I had to remember this this amazing hour that I spent with them at the Bellage, which is not far from the Rainbow and the the gen, the now gentrifying Sunset Strip, where all the places are disappearing, and there's going to be high rises, and it's going to look like Singapore, but. Back then in '93, you had still the great clubs and and uh, and that hotel was cool. So that's where I did the interview. I did it for John Kladner and this record Geffen and this record, and I did a cover story for Rip. Uh, but it just hit me that I had listened to this thing. I don't know ever. I thought when I was putting Planet Rock together, I had gone back and listened, but I must confess here comes the first confession i'm i there's a passage in planet rock where i said when i interviewed jimmy page the one and only time the time before we were i wasn't interviewing i was sitting on a bus with aerosmith and telling a story about chuck berry eating shit out of a girl's ass that's a whole nother 
thing. But this is 93. This is after Coverdale. This is, I went to Florida and heard the Coverdale page mixing at the, the Criterion Studios. I flew with Claudner to, so I was getting prepped to do a really big story. So they set me up and, and I love David because he's just one of my favorite people. So I'm sitting in this room for an hour and I have this tape, this cheaty little cassette tape, this TDK tape. And that's how I used to make my, do my interviews on these tapes, right? And that's not the pre-digital, analog, analog. And I'm listening to this in the car and it's, wait a minute. I wrote in Planet Rock that when I went to interview Jimmy Page, I had one question. You know, and that was, I don't know where that came from. I did ask the question, but it's within the context of an hour-long conversation with David Coverdale and Jimmy Page. And the question it was, when Bonzo died, did you know that that was it for Led Zeppelin? And and I'm listening to the answer now in the car, and I'm freaking because I'm remembering... Whoa, this just opened up a whole amazing exchange. Be And Jimmy talking about Bonzo bringing Jason over to the house after, after shows at like four in the morning and teaching him drum riffs. And that Coverdale had seen him when he was a tyke and how that they had met. Before it was, it's the ramp up to what led to that record, which a lot of people criticized it. I thought it was an amazing album, the Coverdale Page record. Truly enjoyed. I enjoyed the whole f- getting led in on the creative process, and it, it was what it was. I don't know how it's remembered, but now I like want to dig out the CD and listen to it again. But what I'm saying is, is that. I got all these cassettes. They're in this tub, right? Nobody broadcasts. So here's what happened. I was going to play this, part of this, but the cassette player, nobody uses cassettes anymore. It's so antiquated. It's like they're like eight tracks. They have no cred. And you have to have a mother who passed away who still had a car that had a cassette player to even listen to them. Because Mike couldn't even get it to work in the st- in his digital high-tech studio. We couldn't listen, so I can't play you this. But we're going to work on that for my next time I come to town. But here's how my day plays out. So I'm listening, I'm driving, I'm coming off the 15 and onto the 210, and I the, the, the straightest route south down to the LBC in San Pedro is the 605. The 605 is like the shortest distance between two points. So you hop on the 605 way north of the 210, and you just get on, and you're like, zoom, you're already, you're in the, you're like practically in the OC in like 30, 35 minutes. The first thing that happens... After I, this passage on the cassette uh, with the exchange between Bonzo bon, uh, about Bonzo, the, uh, the late Bonzo, and the Jason the Child, I see a billboard on the right as I'm turning on the 605, 100.3. So I turn on 100.3. I take the cassette out because it's pretty much I'm going to listen to it later again. And then, I, and then who, what's on 100.3? Joe Benson, you know. Uncle Joe Benson, uh, 100.3. Memory of Joe Benson. He's like a perennial voice of FM radio for in Los Angeles for a hundred years. And he says, 
big ticket giveaway coming up for the Jason Bonham Led Zeppelin experience or whatever it's called. Okay, so there's the first synchronicity. Is the minute that I pull the cassette out and I turn on the radio, I see the billboard, and the billboard, the the billboard says, turn on the radio. The radio says Bonham. Okay, so <clears throat> so then I go down and I go down to Huntington Beach and I have lunch with Big Stew, <coughs> and. I said to Big Stu, I go, Big Stu, I go, Big Stu, how's Daryl doing? And he says, Daryl's great. He's got a new warehouse. Now, Daryl is my friend, Daryl Sheets, from the show Storage Wars. We became friends years ago, introduced by, when I was living in the LBC, introduced by uh, Big Stu. And I took both of them up to San Francisco for the 2011 Metallica Fillmore 30th Anniversary Performances. And we had the greatest time, and we stayed in that hotel that had a ghost. But it really, I don't know if it was a real ghost, because when Daryl came on the podcast here, when I was doing this every week, like a year, a year and a half ago, he said that he was, that there wasn't a real ghost, that he was fucking with me when, it's another story. But I go, where where's his new place? He says, it's 10 minutes away. So I get in the car, and I go over to see Daryl. And there's Daryl and Kimber, and they welcome me with open arms. And this, they got this whole new warehouse. And you, when you walk into the warehouse, the store, it's like storage wars. You think you're in Big Bang Theory. You think you're in the dude who has the who has the comic book store where all the geeks hang out. And <laughs> there's models and comic books and shit. And then he takes me in the back, shows me all this shit. And then there's posters, Frank Capra and movie posters. And it's just hanging out with Daryl, like hanging at Daryl's house, but not Daryl. Not 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 Daryl Hall and John. No, not Daryl Hall. Daryl Sheets, Storage Wars. So I don't know where this is going, but I'm really in a flow today. So then I get in my car and I, I said, okay, I got to go make a couple more stops. And then I get to the studio. And now I'm here. Um, okay. <laughs> no wonder. No wonder I don't have a legitimate radio show. Oh, but let me just say, oh, this is why. Okay, here's the point. I tell Daryl about this cassette. He goes, and I do a great Daryl. It's as good as my Steven Tyler. Wait a minute, Lon. You've got cassettes of your original interviews. What? I mean, do you know the gambler from Storage Wars? This I nail him. What do you mean? And his son. They're great. Huge, huge Aerosmith fans, Brock fans, Joe Bon. Daryl texts me from a Joe Bonamassa show somewhere last year, and it is, it, 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 they're like having the greatest. Oh, they're on a ship. They're on some ship boat, rock cruise somewhere. Anyway, he loves rock. So he goes, wait a minute. And he knows how to make money, and he's got, he gets 100,000 eBay sales like a day. And I got like four, three a day when I had my eBay page. <laughs> and he said, and he goes, wait a minute, Lon, you've got these cassettes. Do you know how valuable those are, man? Especially if you're sitting with these superstars and you're talking. I said, well, Daryl, they were never made for broadcast. He goes, that doesn't matter. This is a show. We got to, we got to talk about this, man. You get sitting on a gold mine. Okay, I haven't sat on a gold mine 
ever. Unless unless I was at somehow unless I, I I think Larry Flint's first mansion had a gold toilet seat cover in the downstairs bathroom near the chicken, you know, the the bronze chicken that he's fucking where he lost his virginity. You know that's been that story's old. I haven't sat on I don't I don't have a gold. Daryl's got gold mine. I don't have gold mine. But anyway. So I'm gonna have that discussion and that's what that was cool. Okay. <clears throat> So it's March 23rd. Here's here this my brother Rick friend who we grew up listening to all the music together in our room. Okay? My mom was working at Blue Cross. We were we were preteens and then teens and and I was 3 years old or still am. And we had vinyl and every day was vinyl and he and then he I got you know, I got married and I had Megan and then he got married to Linda and he had and he had Aaron friend and Sam friend Sam friend Sam friend was like a roundhouse little wrestler he 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 has he had this attitude like he wanted to take on the world and Sam uh saw his first rock concert with his uncle Lon when he was 6 I took the family to see Metallica at the uh, it's at the it's at the old baseball field in Vegas near downtown, whatever it's called. Um, I don't know, but it was Alice in Chains and Metallica, and and Sam Friend was six, and after the show, I go backstage and I introduce, and Megan was with us, and Aaron and Sam, and they met Lars and James, and James. <clears throat> sitting there and 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 Sam says to to Lars like you know with no fear hey Lars when did you learn to play the drums and James punches in with he still hasn't and Sam busts up laughing and we all laugh and about a week later he bugged my brother to get him a drum kit so Sam friend became a drummer. <clears throat> when I got back to Las Vegas uh, about a year ago, I started to do some writing for local magazines, and one of the local magazines that I w was writing for was, was the Vegas 7 magazine, and th I did a piece on the 30th anniversary of Cirque du Soleil, and I loved those shows. It, all this stuff is online. You could search it and find it. The my my Vegas writings, Vegas Seven. <clears throat> and while doing my story, I went to this Michael Jackson One show at Mandalay Bay, and I was the show was fantastic. But I was really fixated on this chick playing guitar who had these blonde boots and these big hair wavy wind machines and she she was carrying this heavy fucking axe and shredding it just like Jennifer Batten used to shred it on the bad tour and how Orianti was shredding it on the soundstage when Michael died anyway this is the part she plays and so I investigate and I send uh I on Facebook my friend John Bonham <laughs> connected his name's John Bonham John Bonham Fox I ask him about this show, and he goes, oh, that's Gina Gleason. She's a friend of mine. So he connects me to Gina, and I then 
elaborate on my Vegas 7 piece by pitching a profile of Gina, because I think she was fucking awesome, to Desert Companion magazine, which is the slick monthly that I also write for. The best monthly in Las Vegas. Real good paper. It's just beautiful. So uh, I am... Um, I do a profile of Gina, and Gina and I kind of become pals. But at the beginning, like early on, she says, she tells me about her life, and she says, well, I, I'm in this band, this Metallica tribute band in Philadelphia. I'm from Philly. And she's only like 21, and she had this miracle, this miracle story how she got into the one show. She sent a video of her playing her guitar in her fucking mom's basement in Philadelphia, and she got a gig, and she became, and then she plays in front of a thousand people twice a night, every night, you know, a year later, after going through the whole hazing of the what the Cirque hazing is. So I get to know her, and, I, and she tells me about her buddy Leanne, who was in the other shredder in this band, Mistalica, in Philadelphia. And I said, is, Well, where is Mistalica? She goes, Well, it's no more, but Elan's going to move out here, and we have another band. We have a new band, and we're writing songs, and we're called Fever Red. I go, cool. She goes, we need a drummer. And I said, well, really? Let me introduce you to my nephew, because he's a drummer, and he's like, he's like doing post-grad work at UNLV in the orchestra, but he's a motherfucker. Okay, long story short, I introduced Sam to the girls, and... Fever Red is fucking kicking ass, and Lou D'Angeli, the marketing dude, the mogul marketing dude for Vegas, who has relationships all through rock, who is the fucking coolest guy, also from Philly, he is getting them like crazy gigs, like they open for Smashing Pumpkins, like next month they're opening for for Nikki Six at 6 a.m. and for L.A. Guns, and they do club shows, and they're fucking great and today is sam friend's 24th birthday and fever red i'm gonna play you some fever red this is energize the lawn friend podcast
Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast. ACDC, if you want blood. I played that specifically for Gina, Leanne, and Sam because they kill that live. You should see the, you should see these girls, these girls with their guitars and, and Gina's screeching, fucking bringing Bond back to life. <clears throat> they're fantastic. It's not just because they're family, but they are great. And they do that live. And if you go on YouTube or search for them, you probably can find it. Um... We Are Dogs is the Fever Red song, and, uh, oh, I got stuff going on. I got a lot going on. Wait a minute. I got a, I know I got a guest. Hey! <laughs> Welcome to, Mike says, that was great. I go, really? Was it great? Um, I'm going to play you something later on tonight, some Rob Halford from a, a, another radio incarnation that I had. Uh, poof. Literally started um, 15 years ago tonight or yesterday. I'm going to play that later because that's some mystical stuff. Um, Mike, are you on the phone? Really? Oh, okay. I guess I have have a phone. I have a phone call. Dude? Is that... Dude? Hello. Ladies and gentlemen, live from somewhere in Southern California, Bobby Blotzer, the great drummer from... Okay. Thank you, and hit the live applause <laughs> and leave it on for about five minutes. From the band named after a furry, diseased rodent. <laughs> yeah. Dude, what what was the impetus for the name of the band? Not that you haven't been asked that in the last twenty eight years. Yeah, I've never I've never been asked that question. <laughs> um, we used to say because you know it looked like Milton Berle's cock, but um, you know, never seeing that, I can't substantiate that nor deny it. But so. there was urban legend that Milton Berle's penis was exceptionally large. Well, we knew that to be fact a fact because at the premiere for the video for uh, Round and Round, we did the rainbow and had all the Atlantic Records people and radio people, blah, 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 just did a private party. And we had a limo that picked up Milton, he attended, and they had screens, they just kept, you know, screening the video over and over. And we had, well, we, when I say we, our manager, his nephew. Marshall. Marshall, Mm -hmm. yep. He had some dame go out into the limo and smoke his pipe, if you will. Uh, <laughs> so we all just wanted to know if the, the legend was true, you know? And she came back in and we got over to the band table. We're like, so, you know, we're like making the like ruler fit, you know, thing with your thing, your index fingers. And she's like, just extended that another four inches and said, uh-huh. Well, we were like, fuck yes. Right on. <laughs> so you knew you were in good hands. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It's a matter of I was in good hands. I think there were hands around something on him, but the band the the band was in good hands. (laughs) Stephen started this band called it Mickey Rat when he lived in San Diego as a teenager. Right, and um, then they came up like in '81 to L.A. Robin, Stephen, Warren, and a couple other meatheads. I don't remember who it was, but. you know, I was in Europe on a tour with Victor Gatt at that time with, on tour with Nazareth. But um, they were having 
Mickey Rat was an X-rated cartoon right. comic book, and they had some problem with the Troubadour or something. There wasn't enough room to put Mickey Rat on the marquee or something like that, and uh, they just kept the Mickey and added the T. I don't know. But, <laughs> like I don't know what the truth is. It's like folklore. But dude, it becomes folklore because. As you and I, when we had our warm reunion, standing in that cheap trick crowd downtown Las Vegas a week and a half ago, we realized that our children, you know, tomorrow my daughter's going to be 25, your kids are in their 30s, yep. and you, dude, you're like, I mean, Bon Jovi opened for you. You are one of the true mainstays you have seen. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> You've been around, bro. No, what did you say? Bon Jovi opened for you. Never heard of him. <laughs> I have no idea who you're talking about. But it sounds like a pizza, you know. Have a pizza with more Bon Jovi on it, please. <laughs> or extra. Yeah, that was one of the tours, 85. That was a great tour, actually. 85, that was, yeah. We did our first show with them in 1984 when we headed out on tour. Right before the record came out, like a week before, we started heading up the Northwest First show was at the Starry Night uh, nightclub in Portland, Oregon, and they were such fucking dickheads. It was insane. <laughs> we hated their guts so bad. It, it was amazing. They were so weird and mean, you know. On um, like we were waiting at soundcheck. We never even got a chance to say hello, you know. Our stuff was sitting on the floor, and I was kind of sitting behind my kit, making this, sure the symbols were at the right height, etc. Right. right. And they were up there just taking their time, you know. Like, it's like, dude. What, what, has been up here for two hours. The doors are in twenty minutes, you know. And I looked up at the bass player, looks down at me, and I, I kind of smiled and kind of waved. And he goes, "Give me one of these jersey, like, yeah, fuck you." And I was just like, "I'm gonna kill him. <laughs> I'm gonna fucking kill this guy." So we had a great gig that night. And there were so many rap bands there, you know. They closed the show, and then we went out in this balcony afterwards. That was adjacent to this little tiny door that went back to where the dressers were. Mm -hmm. And we all walked out there when they were getting ready to play. And when the band walked out, <laughs> the whole place like was pointing up, you know, into the balcony where we were at. And they were all screaming and going nuts. And I was looking over at the stage at the Bon Jovi guys. They were behind this curtain. And they were fucking getting pissed. I loved it. That was kind of <laughs> a payback for earlier in the day. But as it goes on, the next day was in uh, Seattle. And we were playing the, the Paramount Theater, which is a huge, awesome uh, Nederlander theater. There's not that many of these left. You know, they're built in, you know, 1905, yeah. very grandeur, you know, very mm -hmm. just ornate and mm -hmm. so 4,500 seat capacity and huge giant stage. They put all their shit way up to the front, so we had no room. <laughs> but we had found out earlier that we got the Aussie tour. So we were like, we didn't care. We just wanted to get this over and get down to San. Our crew literally turned around as they were getting off the interstate to Seattle or whatever when we got the call, and uh, they were just getting to the gig, and we turned the truck around. They drove straight down 1,350 miles to San Diego Sports Arena, and that's where we started out with Ozzy. And how did Ozzy treat you? Great. <laughs> He, I mean, dude, oh, my God, the party stories with that cat. Yeah. You just got to read my book. There's a lot of 
not just with Ozzy, but the way we all party together and yeah. hung out. And you know this because uh, you were in there in the mix. Well, I wasn't the partier, but I did no, witness. I did. You were at the parties. I was there at some of them. But you know what? As far as deep as they might have taken me into their confidence, they still never. I wasn't part of the gang because you you had to be a, a musician. You had to be part of the family because I was still on the outside, a writer, a journalist. It was a weird fine line I had to walk all, yeah. along there. But I'm we sure just I just wanted to, the magazine to be cool and yeah, for the bands. You helped yeah. and I was just talking to. Um, I was just actually talking to. My booking agent, not with rap, but I'm getting ready to tour and do my version of our songs. And um, we'll get into that in a few minutes. But uh, I was mentioning to him, I didn't know if this was live, that what we're doing right now. And so that's why I was texting you saying, what's, you know, what's the... Yeah, we stream live, but the link is up later, and then everybody gets to just—it's on demand listening. Yeah. That's what podcasts are all about. Well, I was just telling them about you, and you know how we were buddies way back when, and what you did—you know—for a lot of the different bands, and helped a lot of bands out that were already huge, and helped them even—you know—get more, you know, huge, if you will. I dug covering the contraband record. Yeah, that was a good record. That's a solid record, man. I was I, that money or that record should have been called Easy Money because I was <laughs> I was in and out of there, dude, in like five days. I made twenty grand. I was like, fuck. <laughs> we were off tour and I had like the winner off. I'm like, here's some ski money. <laughs> here's some golfing coin. Here's some gold. Yeah, some golf coin. So. You know what, Bobby? The, when I look back on some of the people that I still who still like answer my phones and shit or remember me a lot of those bonds were made on golf courses and not really so much on sound stages and shit because that's where you really get to know somebody when you're in a golf cart with them like the night like the day we played with jack blades and you ran over his ball and jack couldn't find his ball <laughs> and you go and jack goes i'm gonna have to take a penalty stroke and you go dude my wheels on top of his ball time to bust out the swing doctor <laughs> the swing doctor I would never play without the swing doctor which is always having some green bud when you're going oh, I, I don't smoke bud anymore I get like completely weird paranoid on the weed yeah, no because it's too I don't I'm n hardly it's like ever smoking, it's too strong man it's like smoking acid like, <laughs> fuck dude yeah I want to do this is fun let me take one hit and and worry about my electric bill being paid and my phone bills. And does a cat have litter in the litter box? And shit, I don't want to know. And, and, and we want to legalize this so our entire youth is paralyzed, right? Let's let's just make it easier to get than it already is. Oh I don't know what, what's wrong with society, man. It's a mess. <laughs> but you keep a smile on your face. It was good just to see you. And we both fucking love Cheap Trick and we... We talked to Rick afterwards. How him and Tom don't drink anymore, and they're just as funny as fucking ever. Rick is yeah. so funny. He is funny. He's always been funny. You know, he's Satch. You know, if you remember from the Dead End Kids, anybody that's uh, <laughs> over fifty that would have seen that on TV as a kid, the reruns from the thirties <laughs> movies, what they called the Dead End Kids, the Bowery Boy. Yeah, he took the, he took that character. Uh, from Leo Gorsi, yep. which is called Satch, and you know with the hat and the whole shtick. Yeah, 
I remember when they first came out, I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Are you kidding? <laughs> and I dug the Bowery Boys, so at first I was felt like, dude, you don't rip off the dead end kids. You know? <laughs> but it, what a hell of a writer Rick is. And um, yeah. you know, I did a lot. They toured, they opened for us in 1987. Them and Poison were on that, our, that tour for, uh, what, was, what record was that? Dancing Undercover. And um, I did a lot of partying with them, man. Yeah. And we talked about it that night in Vegas the other night. Yeah. It was about two weeks ago. Yeah. But I ran into Xander, you know, Robin down in uh, yep. Temecula. And I was down there and caught up and played with him. He's a great guy. And, great you know, guy. good to see those guys still out there doing it. You well, know? you could probably lend some perspective to this, that it is like a marriage. It's impossible for, for most acts to stay together for 30, 40 years and Cheap Trick is still up there, you know, except, you know, Nick, Rick's got his son on drums. That's the only yeah. difference. Just like, you know, well, like Eddie has his son on bass. <laughs> I can't speak for that for them, yeah. although I can, but I won't. <laughs> I just know this. It sucks, okay, being in a band. It really does. <laughs> it's the hardest thing to, I, I don't care, if, you know, there's a couple bands that get it somehow. You know, and they either they're just completely getting it or they're faking it so fucking good that you just, yeah. you know what I mean? Because picture being in a marriage with five people, yeah. they're not all going to be great marriage, you know, right. things. And you can't, you know, it's like you really can't get out because you're mm. in and there's too much at stake to leave. I don't know. There's yeah. a variety of reasons why you either come or go or stay, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's a hard deal, man. It's not, you know. Well, people have to evolve, and the band unit has to evolve, and they go through changes, and there's sickness, and there's wealth, and then there's crashes, and a lot of factors appear. And a band is a unit, and it's hard to keep it together, just pure I'll and you, simple. I'll give you a, and anybody listening to this, I'll give you a visual. Go onto your computer, or your computer, unlike my mom. I'm your phone answering. <laughs> Machine, so go on, go online to, and and pull up Eminus Front's video. Yeah, by who? Yeah. And watch the interaction with those guys yeah. or lack thereof. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I remember seeing that back in '82 when that came out. Yeah, I could detect it. You know, it's just because you know it shows them all coming into soundcheck. Do you remember the video? Yep, sure. So you can see. When the band guys see each other, they don't even like they're giggling with the crew, and they're and then you know they beat Townsend walks on stage, and it's just like just I can just just watch the video, you will see this, and I kind of how it is with a lot of it, you know, you yeah. do a job and you try to have fun while you're up there, and yeah. a lot of times bands nowadays just don't even stay in the same hotel. Oh, I know, dude. They take separate buses. Some groups have five members. They have five different tour buses. Absolutely, which is a, is a dream. I did that on the 2010 uh, tour mm-hmm. we did with Scorpions, and because I had my book out and mm-hmm. I was doing, you know, I was doing after show things at clubs where I was getting up and jam with the band. That would be, you know, whatever respective club and band that I would get up and play a set that. You know, the club would hire me to do that, and then I'd do a meet and greet and sell books and blah, 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 yeah. which helped pay for the bus. That's why I was doing it, but oh my gosh, 
I love not traveling. Mm-hmm. But then I, got, I missed it too a little bit. But you know, I, the, there were certain people I missed, but certain people it was fabulous. Dude, this is listen to this. Here's a rare, rare empirical occasion. I was in. Uh, I was in upstate New York, Syracuse, in the snow, seeing Motley Crue and Alice Cooper. And it was the final day of the World Series. It was the, it was the night the Giants won the World Series. <clears throat> and Motley Crue, I, I couldn't even see anybody after the show because they're also— what, what year was that, by the way? This was, this, year, this was last October. Last October, Alice Cooper, Motley Crue. There's all, the crew people all scatter— you, there's, there, you don't know where anybody is. They're on different buses. The Alice Cooper bunch, Alice, his wife, his entire band, tour manager, they all get on the same bus, and that's where I watched the World Series game games the, 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 the Giants won. They're all like a family. It's a totally unique, rare experience. <laughs> but that's Alice Cooper. So. Well, I know Alice as you do. We've golfed with Alice. Yeah, and he always beats us. Um, well, he'd he'd be hard pressed right now unless he's still shooting seventy four and five. Is your game sharp, dude? Well, considering I have a broken back <laughs> and a broken, I just got over a broken neck. Nothing, Wait, what are you talking about? Well, I had to have surgery at the end of our tour in two thousand thirteen. Our last show was with Aerosmith in Brazil. Right. And I split from the stage to get into a car to get the hell out of there to get home to do this uh, fusion surgery on my neck. Yeah. You know, because I uh, you know, collapsed uh, cervicals going on up there. There's a couple problems. Is that just attrition from playing for so yeah. long? Yeah, it is. And, you know, yeah. there's actually a little bit of uh, legal things going on with right. the insurance company because they're, you know, insurance companies just worry about us so much. <laughs> they feel so bad for us that I had to get a lawyer to fucking <laughs> let them know how much I love them too. <laughs> you know? Yes. And no, I, you know, I, I got that fusion surgery in October 25th of, uh, of, um, 2014, 2013, okay. and it was like, they told me it was going to be a three month recovery. It, it, it took, you know, it's, it's never going to be fixed. I can always feel it, but right. For the last three and a half years, I've been, you know, I've been having this lower back issue, you know, that um, yeah. they're just telling me I'm, you know, my discs or my, uh, what do you, um, what am I trying to say, lumbar? Yep. Like the L5 is receding, et cetera. And <laughs> We're getting stuff. old, dude. Now, yeah, well, dude, I'm a dirt bike rider, a golfer, yeah. a skier. Oh, and 41 years on drums, that helps. Yeah. And, you know, I still play like a maniac when I play, but, um, you know, the funny thing is, you know, since Rat has been on, again, uh, temporary permanent hiatus, mm-hmm. you know, I golf. You yeah. Know, I tend to my wife and our dogs and yeah. house, and Good. I play golf, and that's kind of what I do. Um, but now I'm going out, and I'm going to tour. You're going to tour the Bobby Blotzer experience. That's, you know, that's... The working title right now. <laughs> We're in the course of maybe there's two two ideas that I'm going to go on in the next by tomorrow afternoon. You know, and it's just going to be really me playing deep album stuff that these pussies and rat will not play, <laughs> which is deep album cut that we cut. You know, that other you know bands will play their deep album cut. We don't, and that always is a source of 
you know, uh, dissension yeah. with me because yeah. I want to play something different, you know, than the video quote, you know, yeah. video songs. Yeah. So I want to go out and play the stuff we've never played. I mean, there's tunes on records we've never played, even yeah. after the record came out. Dude, fans will love that. We sold three million copies, and we didn't play fucking, you know, <laughs> track eight, which is a great song. It's like, come on, guys, you know. So I'm going to do that and play, you know, the, the standard hits and stuff I'm you know, going to have to do. But I, predominantly, it's going to be like my shit I want to pick, you know, which is a lot of stuff I used to have on the rap uh, website. We had a message board mm-hmm. and I would communicate with the, the fans because nobody else in rap will. You know, it's like, oh, my God, close the curtain. Why? Why are we closing the curtain? I want to try. So, you know, I would ask them, what songs, you guys? Give me some ideas. And I'd get just giant, you know, responses from that. And they were all really cool mm-hmm. ideas for, for set lists, you know, or just not set lists, but, you know, and a, a body of songs, you know. And um, I think it's cool that you're still enthusiastic, dude. Um, because that well, keeps you alive as an artist. I'm between enthusiasm and keeping the electricity on. Oh well, that's another thing. No, Try just, being a freelance writer. <laughs> I'm kidding. It, it, that's part of, it, of course. I want to stay busy working and earning, but you know, yeah. Luckily, our you know body of work keeps everybody pretty comfortable. That's good, man. Yeah, you know, it's not. A, but I, you know, being home here since two, 2013 and. We took a couple of years before that off because of this thing with Stephen mm-hmm. wanting to own the name mm-hmm. and not being able to furnish that. You know, I'm open to it, but mm-hmm. D. Martini wasn't. Mm-hmm. So he kept quitting and quitting, and we took 2011, 12 off. Then I was joining Queens Reich in 13, mm-hmm. and then the phone started ringing. So we went out and did like 30 shows in 2013, and then this neck thing popped up, you know, and you know, I was going to be cool taking, you know, the winter off and getting back out for last year's um, summer tours like every, all the bands do now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we couldn't come to a meeting of the minds. You know, Stephen wants to own the name. Now Juan's back in the band. He wants to own the name. And they're getting even everything, even votes, even money. But, mm-hmm. you know, Warren will not relinquish. The name. I'm open to it. I don't care, you know. Oh, wow. so right now we got... Him and I got a hundred percent of something that's doing nothing. So you know, I I don't I, I'm not into the drama. Oh, yeah, well, I, you I, might I, not you might not be, but the people that are here in the show might. Be, <laughs> what the fuck is going on? So, like, <laughs> ask the right questions there. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know how you're feeling. I care. Well, that, I care that you're I, healthy, I play, dude. I went to Vegas when I saw you and played with that band. Yeah, up there, and we did half of the set of Rat and half cover stuff. And it felt damn good to play. Good. That's what made me think, you know what? That's good. These guys are excellent musicians and playing the stuff, doing justice. And I'm taking them out. Good. And we're going to, that's it. Who's the singer? Singer's, his name is Josh, and he's a 30-year-old cat, lives in Las Vegas. Yeah. And he's dynamite. You know, guitar player. I have two guitar players, a 22-year-old <clears throat> named Blaze. And he is kind of an Edward... Van Lynch, oh, Martini, okay. kind of guy. That's you know? cool. Yeah. And then Scotty Griffin from LA Guns on bass. Yeah, cool, Scotty. That's uh, good. Another fellow named Doc on guitar, and 
I mean, they, they're in a band called the Sin City Sinners. Oh, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had a great time, and we're going to make a, a go of it here. And Well, I wish you I wish you the best. Yeah. Vegas is fertile musician ground. Slash got a good band out of Las Vegas. Well, the singer of <clears throat> Slash's band was the singer of their band, and that's Sin City Sinners band. Miles Kennedy. Yeah, Miles. Yeah, he's, he was a singer in that band. So yeah. he, you know, uh, Slash pinched him. So now I'm pinching the band. So, <laughs> <laughs> there is no Sin City Sinners left except for the people no. from Iowa. And get- no, it was it, it was Brent from Muscat's band. No, I know it was a Brent yeah. guy. He's taking a little hiatus. Yeah, hiatus to be with his family. Yeah, family. yeah, that's cool. But, you know, they're still going to do that thing. I'm sure up there when we're not doing this. I don't think they're folding that, the house on that by any means, but uh, they're good guys, man. Good players. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm, I, I'll am i see you when you come through the desert again, or when I come through here again, or somewhere. Well, I think you're coming up to play golf at my course, aren't you? Well, I don't know when, but soon. My next trip, I guess. You're far out there, but that's cool. Uh, not really. I'm about... Yeah, about uh, 60 miles from here. I know. Yeah, from down at way. Dude, I've driven further to play golf. I drove to Pebble Beach every year for about ten years to play. What the fuck? We drive for golf. Golf heaven. That's golf heaven, of course. Oh yeah. That whole seventeen mile drive up there. That's the best place on earth, dude. Unbelievable. I know. That was when I made money. That was a good time. Well, you know, I know you have a book out, and I have a book. Oh, a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. I got pennies from heaven and dollars from hell. You, I can only imagine your book's got to be like nine thousand. Dude, there's no money in books unless you're a rock star. <laughs> Thirty-five thousand books. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. You've outsold me. You've outsold Planet Rock by three times, and my book's been was out has been out nine years, and it's been out of print for two. <clears throat> anyway, I admire that you wrote a book. I admire that you still have your sense of humor, that you're still upright, and that I could still call you my friend. And that's it. That's it, dude. I know you got stuff to do tonight. So, hey, I don't have a deep track, but I have a good track. I can't hear you. What? Can I pick the, the track? I don't have I don't have a catalog of your stuff here. I don't. I can't get to it. So I'm just gonna play a song, and I'm just gonna thank you, tell you I love you, and that's it. And all right, brother. Take care of yourself, Bobby Blotzer. Take care, everybody. Thanks, thanks, brother. Thanks for all the years of uh, from the people listening in. Right on. I'll be in there. See you, buddy. Ciao. Ciao.
Is it time? I guess so, honey. The surprise for Dan's birthday. Oh, you shouldn't have done anything. Go ahead, Ethel. Give your hubby the big surprise. All right. Here you go, Dan. I, I wrapped it for you special. What's this? O open it. Yeah, go ahead. Well, if you say so. I hope you like it. What's this, a record? It's Perry Como. A real collector's item, you might say. No kidding. I haven't heard Perry Como in years and years. Such a great crooner. You know what a crooner is, don't you, son? No. It's a singer. Someone who sings the old songs. What a great voice he had. Oh, didn't he? Happy birthday, darling. Happy birthday. Hey, you better not hug me too hard. I'm holding a priceless object here. You certainly are. Wow. Do you think we could play it? You mean right now? I'd love to hear some new music. Well... What I'd like to hear is the first part, just the orchestra part, before Como sings. Would that be all right? I don't like singing. <clears throat> I don't think we'd better, Dan. After all, we don't know where the singing comes in. It would be taking too much of a chance. Better wait till you get home. Put it on the table for now. But we don't have a Victrola at home. That's all right. Better to keep it safe. These old records break so easily. I guess you're right. Of course I am. There. It's good that I can't play it here. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Never let it fade away Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Save it for a rainy day For love may come and tap you on the shoulder Some starless night Just in case you feel you want to hold her You'll have a pocket full of starlight Catch a falling star and put Catch it in your pocket Never let it fade away Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Save it for a rainy day For love may come and tap you on the shoulder Some starless night and just in case you feel you want to hold her You'll have a pocket full of starlight Pocket full of starlight Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Never let it fade away Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Save it for a rainy day For when your troubles start multiplying And they just might It's easy to forget them without trying With just a pocket full of starlight Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Never let it fade away Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Save it for a rainy day Save it for a rainy day 
Save it for a rainy Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast, the only podcast in the world where you segue from rat to pericomo. Now, I'm not finished fucking with the eclecticism of why I love this free form so much, why I miss doing this weekly. But my prog segment is coming up shortly. <clears throat> I want to thank Bobby Blotzer. Um and remind everybody that I only show up when I'm in town. My friend Jay Vanitsky was texting me during the ACDC song, and he's another reason why I'm here, because I'm going to have lunch with him. He's at Paramount. He's a movie guy. So I was playing If You Want Blood, and he said, use that in Final Destination 5. I worked on 1 through 4. And Jay is the one who burned me the Stephen Wilson CD. The first one that I played endlessly when I moved to the desert a year and two months ago. Back to the desert. And now I have the new Stephen Wilson. I've been a Porcupine Tree fan since 2002. And I'm still not the earliest Porcupine Tree fan because they, they started about five or six years prior to that. But Stephen Wilson is very possibly the Peter Gabriel of this generation. And he has a new record. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to play you a track from the new record. And I'm going to segue that into some vintage prog. 40-year-old vintage prog. Possibly my favorite prog band. Well, with Genesis and yes, but Stephen Wilson and then some Camel and then I'll be back to ramble some more because this is Energize, Lawn Friend Podcast where all things are possible.
Energize the Lion Friend podcast. That's the Mighty Camel, the story of Ryan Dare, the Snow Goose album. It was their instrumental record that came out in 1975. Doug Ferguson on bass, Andy Latimer on vocals and guitar, the late Peter Bardens on keyboards, and Andy Ward. Andy Ward was the first, the first rock star that I ever corresponded with. They played the Roxy. Two nights, two shows a night in 1975, six, and I was there. No, seven, no, it was like 79 or I don't remember. I just know that I had a Todd Rundgren t-shirt on. It was a back to the bar shirt. It was from the venue. It was the venue in London. And I think... Oh, it had to be 79 because that's after I met Danny O'Connor who sold merch for Todd Rundgren and I met him at the Roxy and he gave me that shirt and he also gave me a job for three weeks. That's in Planet Rock. Anyway, and still friends with Danny. I was texting him pictures of Todd and Luke if they're on stage at the Ringo show in Vegas last week. Why, that was a great show, man. That was the day Mike Picaro passed away from ALS, and Luke dedicated the whole set, his riffs, to his brother Mike, and it was great. So blessed for these kind of experiences. Anyway, so I don't know how I got upstairs. It's one of those things. I got upstairs, um, and there's Camel, and me. I, my brother might have been with me, Joe Bazzello. I don't remember. Pretty, I don't know. I mean, it's okay, it's like 30, 45, 37 years ago. And Andy Ward, the drummer, comes up to me and goes, Hey, man, that's a fucking great Todd Rundgren shirt. I said, Yeah, it's a cool shirt. I was such a geek, a, 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 just a geek, prog, vinyl, you know college kid and he uh he goes i want that shirt man i go well um he goes i'll give you a camel shirt i'll give you a good one and he goes and gets this shirt that says camel ace trucking company tour euro tour 78 and i take off my shirt and he takes off his shirt and somewhere in my disorganized un digitized maelstrom archive of shit i have a photograph of me and him exchanging shirts with our shirt with our bare tops in the dressing room at the roxy and he said here's my address in england man send me drop me a line i mean those were the days those are wonderful days where you wrote cards and letters to people and you expressed emotion and you didn't and you di you couldn't spell check and there was no social media to dilute the purity of your expression at the moment it just went out there so i sent cards to andy ward and he would send me back postcards from england andy ward from camel and I, I haven't 
seen him since. I'd love that man so much. Did you see the movie Winged Migration that came out about 12 or 13 years ago? Made by the French film crew, I believe, that also directed the film later, Marching with Penguins. Well, this film has the the birds, where the, how they migrate and where they fly, and the cameras are like wing level. It's extraordinary. They used songs from the Snow Goose in that film. All the Camel records are great. I remember when Mood Madness came out, I was changing oil in my Uncle Ed's shop. That was like the first job I ever had. I was like 16, and my Uncle Ed Regillo had this Ed's Automotive on Hillhurst in Hollywood, and he taught me how to change oil. <laughs> and I remember getting that record and, and putting the CD on in my car and, and, and opening like speak my doors so I could listen to it while I was working on my car stereo. When, that, when you could listen to, to cassettes in your car, here we go, all the way back to the beginning of the show, cassettes. Wow, everything comes back. I find myself, um, I find myself wanting to retreat from, from modern media, from technology. I want a Willoughby time, a simpler time. I believe that I'm supposed to write a novel. I had this very disenchanting conversation with an agent, a literary agent, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, he was, I was put in touch by somebody who I really respect, and he handles a lot of <coughs> pretty important projects. And he, we start to discuss, he says, well, if you were to write a book, would you have any suggestion? What would your book be? And I gave him my three ideas, and they all surrounded topics that were either a memoir or a fiction based on, based on my life as a sort of a time traveler through rock and roll. And he just, just like, it, you could hear the crickets and the tumbleweeds in his office. And then he said, well, do you think that James Hetfield would write a book? Could you write James Hetfield's book? Could you write uh, Peter Gabriel's book? Could you, could you write? I said, well, no. Um, I don't think that's what I'm supposed to do. He said, well, if you could bring an artist like that, then we could talk business, pretty much. So I'm essentially worth nothing. But my experiences are priceless to me. And that's, I guess, where we define ourselves. Like the yogis say, we are nothing but the memory we leave behind. So if those people that we've touched in our travels and the realms that I've traveled, you know, I, I'm going to pull out one more thing really special to play you because this show doesn't happen very often anymore. So I found another disc and it's an interview I did with Rob Alford, the great Rob Alford, who I'm so fond of. And I, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but in 2000 at knac.com, I had a show called Breath of Fire every Wednesday night, which started on the Vernal Equinox in 2000 and ended on the Vernal Equinox in 2001. But I, um, we sat and talked one afternoon for a long time, and I zeroed in on some mystical topics, some paranormal topics, some outer space topics. 
And I'm going to share that conversation with you in a couple in a couple more songs, and then I'm going to come back and wrap it all up and wish my daughter a happy birthday. And I'm thankful for this audience, even though I get texts from people that say, I can't, where do I listen to this? You know, I'm the poor self-promoter. I used to be, hey, it's all about me, Lon Franya. It's not about me. It's about you. It's about unification, man. It's certainly not about Ted Cruz. Here's Breath of Fire, Rob Halford. Flashback. Okay, Rob. Close Encounters of the Priest Kind. Let's hear it, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I think it's pretty common for, for musicians, being creative people like we are, and be, being sensitive beings like we are, to, um, to have these moments. And... Uh, I have one really, really strong moment that, that lasts with me. Um, one of them is of the UFO kind, but there's another one which is of the clairvoyant kind. But my one UFO moment comes when I was about um, 17 or 18. It was before I became a professional musician, and I was working at a theatre in um, back home in England and uh, I used to work the night shift. So I'm coming home from work pretty late at night, at about one or two in the morning, and I'm riding a bike and uh, pull the the bike up to the front of my house. And I'm just sitting there and I just happen to look up and this is like a crystal clear, clean night in the winter time in England. The air's like sparkling clean, dead silent. And uh, lots of stars and like a really beautiful evening and I just happened to look up and then from right in front of me comes this uh, like a red orange ball of could it be fire I don't know but it comes right in front of me and literally stops overhead this is like in, in the sky in the heavens above me and it was it was basically the way it appeared that kind of freaked me out I thought this is unusual is that a meteorite or what but then it actually stopped and I'm like, well, this is really strange, you know, this is like one or two in the morning, what, what can this be? So I'm standing there looking at this thing, and it's just it's just still. It isn't even moving over, and it's just stopped. And then, from about five or six points all around me, come these other balls of light. I mean, we're talking green, blue, purple, whatever. All of them come from all points of the night sky, you know, north, south, east, west, wherever, they all converge in to this one point, this one large object, and they just go inside of it. They just literally go into this one light, and, like, by now, I'm like, what the hell is this? I'm freaking, you know, I'm just looking, and then maybe just a few seconds later, this thing just takes off overhead from behind of me. So that's my one... That's my one UFO story. Did you talk to people about it afterwards? I told a couple of people. Because, you know, I went home and I'm sitting at home having a cup of coffee and thinking, uh, what, was, what was that? What did, I, what did I really see? But, I mean, uh, you know, I was lucid. I was perfectly, you know, my faculties were all there. I hadn't been drinking, I hadn't been drugging. It was just a, just a very clean, precise moment that I had. 
and 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 so it was you know and that was just like a really really bizarre moment in uh, in my uh, in my memories that, that is that is still really strong do you ever dream obviously the et craft <laughs> civilization somewhere and if in fact that is true and it apparently is then there must be others
mean, those I've, happen every day. Yeah. Aware to, mm -hmm. to notice them, but something. Oh, I think so too. I think that I think that we know we only use one one tiny portion of our brain. Mm -hmm. You know that that the potential for for the brain is is phenomenal. And I think this is what these clairvoyants have. I think they have an another another ability. Mm -hmm within within the, the use of the brain to bring in another level of awareness so this this story is really important for me because it's based on somebody that I lost that was very near and dear to me really really close friendship and this person uh, passed away in a very tragic very tragic way and uh, I was very you know f upset and had, had the whole grieving process for weeks and weeks well Sometime later, I was in New York City with a girlfriend of mine, and uh, we went to the Limelight Club. Right. Which was a church. Which was a church. Right. We went to the Limelight Club, which was a church. And we're there, we're hanging out upstairs in the celebrity room with Billy Idol and all of these people. This is like maybe in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, this friend of mine said, you know, the, there's a special thing going on here tonight. They have clairvoyance. They brought in about five or six clairvoyants, and you can go sit down and talk. And I'm like, oh, really? And she said, yeah. And this girl has, has some kind of um, connections with, um, with um, what, what's that religion? Santa Rosa, Santa Maria. It's like a Cuban, it's like voodoo and, uh, and Catholicism. Um, and she said, well, you know, you know, I have some belief in that with family. And I go, yeah. And she's, well, I know what you went through some time ago. I think it would be cool just to, for you to meet this one lady. And her name is Pearl. Simple name is Pearl. She's a big, beautiful black Jamaican woman. And uh, I said, well, you know, I don't know what about this stuff. I, I'm, I'm not really very into it or whatever. And she would just sit down and, and see what she's got to say. So I did. I went upstairs, big, beautiful Jamaica woman. Hey, come in, sit down, let's talk, whatever, whatever. We sit down. She's asking me how I'm enjoying New York, and yeah, I'm having a good time. And she's, um, she's like, so what do you want to, what do you want to talk about? And um, I go, uh, well, I don't know where to begin. And she said, uh, well, l let me help you because there's somebody here that wants to tell you that everything's okay, that everything's fine, that you know. They know that you've been grieving and everything, but don't worry because everything's fine. You know, you, at some point you'll see each other again. I'm like, whatever, you know, <laughs> just this, 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 this kind of comforting type of thing I'm supposed to hear. Mm -hmm. But then she says, so um, this, uh, this friend of yours would always play practical jokes. And I go, yeah, yeah, that's kind of unusual. How would you know that? And she said, oh, well, this friend's just saying um, that, you know... That, Practical jokes were, were, were part of the way things were and used to have a lot of fun with it and, you know, he would always do this joke or that joke on you and you'd always laugh it through, whatever. And, that, and he, he also wants to know if you've got the shower fixed back at the, the house in England. So now I'm freaking. The shower, how do you know about the shower? Because that's stuff that only you yeah. and this is, your yes. late friend would right. know. And I go, well, so I'm saying, okay, wh what do you mean about the shower? And she said, he wants to know if you fix the leak under the shower that would come through the light fixture in the hall. So now I'm totally bugging. How does she know about the shower? How does she know about the light fixture? Because that's where the water would collect and come through and the light would blow, you know? And I'm like, okay, yeah. So what else, is, what else has this friend of mine got to say? And uh, she said... Uh, 
he wants to know if you still have that item of clothing that he gave you. And I'm, I'm like, oh my god, because this was like really personal. She was fine. She was saying stuff that I, that nobody knew about. Nobody knew about but me and this other friend. And I go, uh, yeah, I still do. And she said, oh, that's right, because he just wants to know that you know you've still got that that certain item of clothing because that was a keepsake and wants to make sure that you know that you didn't throw it out or or anything like that. So I mean, these things that no one could ever possibly know about because I, I hadn't told I hadn't even told this close friend of mine Gigi my girlfriend and, and so that was it I mean I, now I'm thinking out of that one UFO experience and now this clairvoyant experience there's just so much going on around you in life that, that you that you're simply not aware of and that if you open your mind and you open your eyes and your ears to all these possibilities you can see them you feel as you get older you get older do you? Do you? Don't you think that that's what it is? It's all about wisdom. It's an accumulation of wisdom. This is what I think is what it's all about.
Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast. Zach, Tom, Tim, Rage Against the Machine, Rage Against the Hate, Rage Against the Greed, Rage Against the Ego, Rage Against the Judgmental, Rage Against the Impatient, Rage Against the Unconscious, Rage Against the Idiot who's taking up your space because all you want to do is meditate and make it better because the world's getting really fucking hard. I watch this Sunday night. I watch, um, I watch two shows on Sunday night and my, my ex Joyce, Megan's mom got me into this thing, uh, about, uh, Taya Leone. She's the, uh, She's she's a secretary of state, I think. Yeah, <clears throat> Madam Secretary. And then I watch I watch the show with uh, what's her name um, from uh, you know <laughs> Good Wife, produced by Ridley Scott. Originally produced by Ridley and Tony Scott, who jumped off this bridge outside my window, the Vincent Thomas, in two thousand and twelve, <clears throat> because. He raged against something, life. Um, so Madam Secretary is, she's trying to explain to this Chinese ambassador that the Amazon rainforests are disappearing and that the crash and burn economic policies are going to hurt the next generation and don't they want to take care of our children She's a very articulate argument about taking care of the next generation because we're going to leave shit to them. We're, we, the, we have scorched earth, this planet. We've chemtrailed it into fucking poison oblivion. So what are we going to leave behind to our children? And she's essentially being, you know, she, she has an anxiety attack and has to go to the hospital and the money in the politics trump the integrity of her message. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just happy I'm here. Happy somebody's listening. And March 24th, tomorrow, Tuesday, March 24th, 1990, that was the day my life changed forever. That was the day my daughter, Megan Rose, was born. She was born early in the morning. Joyce's water broke about 1 a.m. And I went, what? We went to Mount Sinai. And I had the Enya watermark uh, cassette. <laughs> really, back to the egg. And... It was playing in the delivery room, and um, that's why we, my daughter loves Anya, because it was playing when she emerged, and that moment, and I was there, I saw her, and she just go, whoa, how did that get in there? She was just like so big and bright, and and that's it, and that's the day, and tomorrow it's 25 years, and he, look at me. I'm sitting here like babbling, Dad. But uh, 
in my life, I've loved no one more. Happy birthday, Megan Rose. Thanks for uh, listening. This Energized Lawn Friend Podcast. There are places I I love you more